Welcome. Uh, my name is Heather Turner Loth. I am practice leader of project development and strategy at EUA, Epstein Ewan Architects, up in Milwaukee. So happy to be down here. Absolutely gorgeous day. I took the river walk from the train station over here. Love it. It was amazing. Um, I do want to quickly acknowledge um, my fellow program co-chairs of last year. This is my last kind of program as program co-chair. I'm migrating over to membership, but Teresa Broderick with EY and Joshua Bear um, with CBRE. It's been awesome working with you guys. Um, and then welcome Jessica, Jess, um, Jenik with DoorDash. Um, she's the new program co-chair with Teresa. So I'm going to put in a shameless plug for the programs committee, even though I'm leaving you guys. They could always use the help. So if you're not in a committee right now, I would totally reach out to them. Um, it's a lot of fun. It can be a little, little work, but it's a lot of fun to put programs on like this together. Um, I also want to acknowledge Stephanie Denton. I know she's not here today with Cushman Wakefield. She was really a backbone in helping us secure the panelists. And then John Wickman, who I don't think is here today, um, as well with Cushman and Wakefield, who helped us connect with the panelists. Okay, so you're in for a treat. We've got a super uh, diverse panel today between end user to property manager um, and also real estate to really take a look at the industrial market and how they were responding to the changing demands in our marketplace. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome the panelists up, hold your applause until they get up here, and then um, they're going to go ahead and introduce themselves. I'm going to exit stage right, and we'll get things started. So first up, our moderator, Alex Malay, director of Cushman Wakefield. Uh, Matt Menina, leasing manager with Prologis. Ben Pugh, senior managing director, corporate capital markets at Cushman Wakefield. And Bill Alexander, vice president, global real estate and corporate facilities with Xylem, Inc. So please welcome our panelists and have a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Heather, and thank you to the Cornette chapter for hosting this event. So quickly, we'll do intros. My name is Alex Millay. I am a director at Cushman Wakefield. Um, I am a multi-market tenant rep broker based in Chicago. I have a lot of clients based in Chicago as well as around the country and help them with all of their real estate needs. So I'll take it. Go from there, Bill. Great. Hi, I'm Bill Alexander, Vice President, uh, Global Real Estate and Corporate Security for a company called Xylem, Xylem Inc. We're a $6 billion revenue water technology company that delivers your fresh water and takes your wastewater away around the globe. Uh, I've been running the real estate for eight years now. We've uh, got about 400 locations around the globe and 13 million square feet under roof. Hi, I'm Ben Pugh. Uh, I'm in our Cushman Wakefield's corporate capital markets practice. We focus on finance and financing for corporate occupiers. And I'm a longtime member of Cornet and a uh, member of two chapters, Northern California and Atlanta, where I have a national practice. And uh, we, I've been a longtime uh, faculty member of Cornet, uh, leading several finance classes as well. So privileged to be here with all of you. Good afternoon. My name is Matt Menina. I'm a leasing officer with Prologis. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Prologis, we're the largest uh, owner, operator, and developer of logistics real estate in the world. Um, our portfolio spans, uh, I think, 19 countries, four continents. We've got about 5,500 buildings, 6,600 customers, and it's about 1.2 billion feet. Um, 
in Chicago. Uh, we own about 85 million feet. <clears throat> um, we've got about, uh, yeah, 80, 85 million feet. Um, I don't even know, 400 buildings, I think. Uh, we just recently uh, acquired Duke Realty in October, which, which brought us up to that body. We were at 65, we're at 85 now. And um, my primary role with the company is, is executing uh, new leases, uh, renewal leases, working with brokerage community, maintaining positive relationships with our customers, and driving NOI and asset valuation growth. Great. Thanks, everyone. Okay, so with that being said, let's get started. We have a lot to discuss. Um, so quickly run through our agenda. We're going to start with a few slides to level set everyone on the U.S. industrial market um, as provided by our Cushman and Wakefield Research Department. Dive into some hard-hitting questions for our panelists, and then we'll leave um, about 15 minutes for Q&A at the end. So our topic for conversation today is rethinking strategies for changing dynamics in corporate real estate. While real estate often stands the test of time, its dynamics are changing rapidly. Industrial occupiers, landlords, and service providers alike are all looking at the total cost of ownership, how real estate affects the balance sheet. Because these changing dynamics, companies are required to be smarter, faster, more flexible to keep up with the demand of their customers. So with that being said, we're gonna start with a few slides. Thanks, Heather. So you guys can see it up there, and then our panelists should hopefully be able to see it on the smaller screen. But um, first slide, supply and demand. So the U.S. industrial market kicked off 2023 with moderating absorption. First quarter net absorption came in at 62.5 million square feet and was comparable to quarterly totals registered early in the expansion cycle 2016 to 2019. While absorption has tapered off significantly compared to previous years, it's showing more of a normalization in market conditions to more sustainable demand levels when compared to pre-pandemic years like 2019. The Q1 numbers are right on track when comparing to pre-pandemic 10-year average. The start of the year is looking quite positive. New deliveries outpaced demand in Q1 at 129 million square feet down 12.2% from Q4 in 2022, but up 40% from Q1 in 2022. And then approximately 80% of Q1 deliveries were speculative, which is up 73% in 2022. This level of development activity is something that bears watching, but historical average demands and near record low vacancy rates will help prevent overbuilding. However, any new pipeline activity will be worth monitoring for potential overbuilding. The speculative to build to suit ratio has shifted to a greater share of spec projects in the past few years and is nearing levels that immediately preceded the financial crisis in 2008. With vacancy at 3.6% at the end of Q1, the overall net rents, let the sink in, is 919 per square foot, which is a record high. Developers are trying to get the needed quality space back into the market. So next slide, speaking to historical vacancy rates, um, which I know we all are familiar with. Um, vacancy rates will rise, um, and the market is still very, very tight. Um, and this slide here is to visualize a worst-case scenario, um, which you can see in the dark blue bar. Um, if the entire speculative pipeline, which is roughly about 500 million square feet, were to be delivered today, not pre-leased at all, which we know won't really happen, but 
it would put the vacancy rate at 6.9%. And for comparison, the vacancy rate at the height of the previous expansion in 2007 was at 8. So though overbuilding is a possibility and a future concern, the market would not be the same position as it will be in 2008, 2010, when the market delivered 90% speculative space with negative absorption. So next slide, a hot another topic, rents. Um, so the ongoing tight market conditions and aggressive competition for space saw another quarter of rent growth in Q1 2023, increasing 17.2% year over year. Um, and at 919 per square foot, this is the first time we have surpassed the $9 mark um, in the US industrial history. So it's a pretty crazy, staggering number. Try not to smile so big, Matt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been tough for a lot of my clients. Um, <laughs> all but 12 of the 83 markets we track at Cushman showed a year-over-year -year increase in asking rent growth. So it's safe to say the elevated rent growth is here to stay um, for the next few quarters, but it'll continue to trend higher over the next couple of years as well, but not at the rate we're seeing today. Um, so next slide and the last slide before we get into our hard-hitting questions. So a lot of my clients, and I'm sure a lot of you are asking, like, so what are we thinking for the rest of this year or into 2024? So we're forecasting tenant demand to decelerate as consumer spending shifts away from purchasing goods amid the softer economic conditions. Um, healthy construction completions will persist. New supply will outpace demand, leading to higher vacancy rates across the markets. Um, and then although national vacancy rate is projected to be 5.5% the second half of 2024, the market will remain healthy with vacancies still sitting below the 15-year average at 6.8. The rise in vacancy is good news for occupiers looking for a new space. Um, so vacancy is not expected to top out higher than that because of the scaling back of development, um, which happens quickly within the industrial sector. Um, thereby allowing for a quicker recalibration than in others. Construction starts are already showing signs of moderating going forward amid the economic headwinds, which could lead to a supply constraints in the future. So despite the ongoing headwinds, rent growth will persevere um, and mid high occupancy rates growing in the signal digits over the next few years. So I know that was a lot of information to take in in a few minutes, but I wanted to just level set everyone since I know we don't have all industrial users or experts in this room. Um, and you know, we have a great panelist of people in the industrial sector. So just wanted to give some context as what we've seen in the past 12, 24 months and what we're seeing in the future. So, you guys ready for some hard-hitting questions like I keep saying? You know, you didn't emphasize the hard-hitting part when we signed up for this. Just, to... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, okay, so with that being said, I have a question for all of you. So now that we've discussed where we are in the market, in your opinion, what are the biggest challenges facing the industrial real estate market today? And Bill, you can go first. Oof. Um... Wow, that's good. And it's challenge which perspective you want it, right? It's challenge, and challenge, challenge, and opportunity. My challenge is that um, industrial as a whole is one market, but 
What you're seeing from a lot of industrial users, manufacturers in particular, is a bigger emphasis on service delivery, right? So we go from big box warehouse and large manufacturing, but we are growing a lot in the service piece where we're looking for 20,000 square feet of flex industrial, and we've got a big need for land and yard attached to that because we have large fleets of service equipment and uh, you know raw material and things that need are better stored or historically stored outside. And you know developers don't want to give up entitled land to store our stuff. And communities aren't really excited about you know. So you want to put fencing and all this this kind of thing driving. Um, those low vacancies down to very few places in the markets where we can get the kind of space we're really hungry for quickly. So uh, I think that's the that's the biggest challenge is how we how we face that and what do we do when you know you're talking about rents. We're we're looking at land rents that are equivalent to what we used to pay for buildings, right? So it's that's how much that part of the market has moved, and uh, it's driven by consumer trends. Amazon has changed everybody's expectation of delivery, right? We all are waiting for the overnight, and even industrial customers who used to be willing to wait mm -hmm. 30 days to get their pump delivered, right? Now they want it overnight, and it's changing where we need to be. It's changing that one distribution network. You know, we used to be able to do a manufacturer, a, uh, a distribution center in Memphis and cover the country for our delivery needs, and now we need five regional markets to be able to get there overnight. So uh, those kind of problems laid against the landscape that you painted, Alex, mm -hmm. uh, keep a lot of us up at night. Yeah, for sure. So. so Ben, what are some of your biggest challenges? Yeah, so one of the things we're seeing is, I guess, starts with the adage of follow the money. And, and the backdrop of, of the statistics you shared and, and the general health of the industrial market uh, is that there's some unique dynamics in financing coming out of what we've experienced is a very, very low interest rate environment across the board. So over the last more or less decade up until about middle 2022, we had hyper low interest rates and we all benefited from that in a lot of ways. And one of the things that, that happened was on the development side, a lot of development was funded by very low cost capital, which drove then higher valuations, drove um, more velocity in the in the building, you know, uh, selling, trading, refinancing, all that cheap money fueled a lot of that. But it also, on the industrial side, was matched by real demand. So, it's up, but now, you know, the music in some ways has stopped or at least <laughs> changed the game. Uh, the industrial fundamentals are still pretty darn strong. It's it's uh, you know when you look at this, they kind of think like it's the difference between going down the highway at 70 miles an hour, and now you're only going 58. It's like, okay. <laughs> but you're still going 58, right? And the speed limit is 55. So it's not, a, it's not a bad thing, but it's just different. Um, but parallel to, so but in the coming out of cheap money phase, we have a couple of problems or challenges. So one is that as um, a lot of uh, commercial real estate has been funded by inexpensive debt, there's a wave of that debt maturing over the next several years, roughly about 400 billion, uh, B with a billion a year over the next several years is maturing. And that debt is gonna, if it gets refinanced, we refinanced at several 
percentage points higher, which makes a lot of the uh, investment uh, thesis kind of challenging. And so there's going to be some interesting dynamics. It's unclear as to how that's going to play out, what that means for occupiers, other than to say that it's likely to be less, um, less new space built because of that. On the corporate side, there's a similar dynamic. So corporates you know, went to the bond market in a big way, uh, sort of second quarter of 2020. So if you, if you remember, you know, we try to forget this because it was kind of painful, but you know, when everything kind of shut down in March of April, March, April, 2020, the capital markets overall kind of got seized, locked up, and it was really scary. And the Federal Reserve backstopped the corporate bond market, and all of a, which is a very unique thing, precedent setting. And in doing that, uh, it unlocked the bond market. So all our companies, you know, our company and many others here at the table, went and got uh, cheap debt to make sure if you're the treasurer or CFO, you want to have a lot of money in the bank to be prepared for whatever is going to happen next, whatever black swan crazy events we're going to be faced with, we want to have money to weather it. So now there's also a wave of that debt maturing over the next several years, you know, roughly about $5 trillion over the next five or six years. Two-thirds of its investment grade, which means it's, it's very likely to be financeable, it'll be financed, again, two or three percentage points higher. But the difference is that investment-grade companies, and many of the companies here in, in, who are members of the Chicago uh, chapter, you know, have the wherewithal to accept and absorb higher interest rate in their debt, um, or may just have enough cash where they say, you know, we're just going to pay it off and not worry about it. But those that are sub-investment grade, which is about 25% of the market, meaning they have, they're, uh, they're not as um, financially str strong, they're going to struggle. And so therein it, it lies some challenges ahead of us, uh, both for the occupiers, potentially for, for their landlords. So the interesting times ahead. Yeah, very interesting times ahead. Ben, you, you talked about you know, what could be coming on the industrial side, and we're clearly already seeing it on the office side of things, yes. right? That the few office deals I want to do, I'm having trouble getting a landlord to deliver on a TI package that I need to create the remote work, you know, friendly collegial environment. And uh, are, are you seeing changes in how landlords and their lenders are being able to work in that environment? Yeah, so, yeah, huge, huge changes. And so if you're if you're seeing some of those challenges when you're trying to get projects done, there's, there's real big reasons for it. So I know our, our focus is industrial, but many industrial companies often have office space, or, and there are many office users here. And we're in the midst of a, an amazing office market with all these beautiful buildings here. The, um, in, in general, we're in a different place in the office market, I believe, than we were coming out of the great financial crisis or coming out of the dot-com crash, and that is that uh, vacancies are increasing. When people renew or take more, take uh, move, they're taking less space for all the reasons we know in terms of workplace strategy, you know, re return to office, work from home, all those things. Um, so we're taking less space. We're, we're uh, using less, less space. There's less space. Rents are, are softening. It's either expressed in terms of concessions or lower rents. Values uh, for the buildings are plummeting because of some of the financing problems. So we're seeing some of your, your counterparts who are office REITs, you know, many of them have lost value 50, 70, 80%. So many times the stock market valuing these companies at half 
of what they paid for the buildings they bought. So there's a big problem. And unlike the great financial crisis, we assumed that when the economy healed, we're going back to the office space, we'll be back to, you know, one seat per person, everybody's supposed to be in the office, and the demand will pick up. But we as, as occupiers in the occupier community and the investors are also assuming that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And so that's then causing the investors to, uh, to have real, you know, they have deep pockets, but they have very short arms. So <laughs> they're not going to reach for those TI allowances that they used to. And so th that's a real thing. And that's a problem. There's some solutions we can talk about, but it's a real problem. And on yeah. the end user side, we're doing exactly the, you know, exactly the opposite of what we, you know, pre-COVID, a lot of our manufacturing facilities were running just fine, and what we were short on was office space. And we we're building out into, you know, with lean projects to, so we needed less manufacturing and less warehouse space. We we're building out office space into there to kind of solve for office so we didn't have to go out to the market. And now it's the exact opposite. We're knocking down what we had and converting back to, mm -hmm. oh, how can we make that lab space? And how can we make this? distribution or a new manufacturing line where there used to be the office base attached to the same large properties. Yeah. So Matt, as a owner, what are some of your biggest challenges? Um, I think I think labor is still a challenge. Um, ongoing labor shortage. I think the US con construction industry came out. Uh, there were there were 450,000 unfilled job postings, um, which is, I think, a, a high. Um, and it, it impacts industrial real estate in that if you don't have skilled builders, it's going to delay your construction delivery, um, creates bottlenecks in, in, in materials. Um, it drives up for the, for, the, for the folks who are staying in the labor force. Um, it drives their wages up, which is great, but it also increases the, the, the cost of construction. Um, and, and what we hear from our customers is that it's impacting uh, warehouse operations, uh, just operating at, at kind of peak levels. So Absolutely. In the past, we never looked, you know, our largest projects, we looked at labor analytics. Now we look at them on everything. Service centers where, you know, we need diesel mechanics. We're doing studies on what the, what the labor cost is, what the labor inflation rate is. Uh, that's the biggest, the biggest driver is, you know, can we get the people we need to produce the product and services we desire that we never had a problem before. Yeah. The other aspect to that is, uh, the other difference is the uh, crime and the safety of the locations we're choosing is uh, receiving much more attention and much more uh, analytics around that point. So the sweet spot of the triangle is where can I get the labor cost effectively, right? Where are those workers safe coming to the table? And how do I do that for a cost that I can afford when, you know, we're unfortunately setting record rents for, uh, you know, our developer friends, so. And if you're, so. if you're in, you know, as companies grow, it's hard to go east. It's hard to stay in those high barrier of entry markets, those infill markets. So you need to push out west, and as you go out west, there's there's less population, there's less people to draw from for labor. So it's hard, you know, we just heard that from a customer yeah. yesterday. So it's it's a challenge. Totally. 
So next question. Um, there seems to be a shift from low cost to mitigating risk in the industrial market. How are your companies embracing these concepts? Oh, it's, it's, it's all I live for now. <laughs> for, um, you know, the name of the game is resiliency. Uh, and, you know, before it didn't matter where on the globe we located things as long as we were producing them in a low cost country and could pop things on a ship and store inventory and be fine. And we have, uh, uh, you know, massive investments in uh, nearshoring. So we still want to be, you know, low cost areas, but you've got to be able to shorten that supply chain because you never know when the next piece, you know, when the next piece is coming. Uh, uh, you know, I uh, I started with COVID because we have an office in Wuhan, China. So I say, you know, it was closed on day one. And we were pretty much at ground zero of when it hit Europe. And we had a plant in Italy right in the ground zero area. And, uh, you know, patient zero in the U.S. was friends with our corporate headquarters people. We were, everybody went to the same synagogue and we, you know, you know everybody was, was there. And then... Uh, you know, just when you think you're safe and in the woods, if you, you know, you're still looking at the Ukraine-Russia impact and what that does to energy prices across Europe and all of those components, we're just seeing shipping container rates come down from COVID and those impacts. Uh, energy rates are still high. So we're bringing everything we can to shorten supply chain everywhere. So, um, you know, instead of the low-cost China one source or two sources for raw materials, we're looking for, uh, you know, North American providers who can backstop and blend and give us some sense of resiliency for whatever the next version of disruption is, uh, you know, whether that's Taiwan and China conflict or, uh, you know, trade tariff issues in uh, Latin America, you know, we're seeing it everywhere. So um, it, it's all about that. And it's driving a, a, a different take of we're willing to accept a certain amount of redundancy in our portfolio mm -hmm. in order to be able to deliver when, uh, you know, increase our ability to deliver and respond to crisis and increase our ability to deliver quickly in the changing nature of what's expected from our customers. Yeah, absolutely. How about you guys? How are you mitigating risks? your company um, so I'm not this is not like uh, you know nothing nothing fancy but our our the CEO of our company had said that the uh, supply chain is kind of like your car when it's running you don't you don't really give it much thought <laughs> when it breaks down you're like oh all right this is you know this is not good what's going on here so the pandemic Made comp made businesses shift from, uh, you know, low cost prioritizing costs. Made them pivot to building out building up resiliency in their supply chain, mitig uh, mitigating risk. Um, you went from the just in time inventory model to uh, just in case, uh, which industrial owners have have been the primary beneficiary of, I think. Um, and that's, you know, um, spreading out the supply chain, going to lower tax jurisdictions, now now bringing things back, increasing inventory, and, you know, that equals, I need more warehouse space. So we had, in 2022 especially, I mean, we had this fear of missing out. We actually saw 
customers who were coming to us because the vacancy rate is so low, there's no availability. I mean, there were three or four different customers looking, coming to us, taking down space um, because they knew, hey, if we win a contract or we can't win a contract unless we have some space to go to. So they would take it almost defensively. Let's just lease more space. Let's increase our stock. Um, and, and I mean, there were instances where we had, I mean, in, like in the O'Hare market, we had a couple instances where um, there were three groups looking at a space. You, you, you know, third place was kind of out, outside looking in. We went to the, 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 the top two, and there was, there was essentially a bidding war for, for space. Said, Are you still you know, seeing that today, or was that? So, like you said in the beginning, like we're seeing like a normalization in the market. There aren't three or four groups looking for space, mm -hmm. but there's still one or two, which which is which is which is good. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, Ben. Specific question for you. Okay. Different capital is emerging with manufacturing companies as they continue to create products, not just technology. How is this influx of capital changing the landscape? of industrial investors? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing we've seen over the last 20 years has been the, the rise and the growth of private equity. So, you know, in the press, we often see the names, you know, Blackstone or KKR, Carlisle, TPG. And it's kind of perspective setting to realize that, you know, Blackstone's the biggest. They went from, you know, being founded in 1985 to today, uh, almost a trillion dollars in assets under management. So all the companies they own and control, it, that is, it, no individual company is particularly that big, but they control so many that it's actually pretty sizable. And that's a really different thing um, than, than prior in, in our economy and in the world economy. And so what that, and a lot of the companies that they control are companies that are in the industrial manufacturing product creation space and, um, and that's led them to, to also imbue decisions about real estate with their mindset. Their mindset is they're often going to make things more efficient in the business. They want to either drive profitability and or drive growth. And they're also very comfortable with adding debt. And they're also very uncomfortable with owning real estate. And so what we often see is they're the first ones. As soon as a PE firm buys a, a private company, takes control of it, maybe it's a founder or family built a business, they sell. One of the first things the PE firms do is do a, try and do a sale lease back with any of the assets. So that starts to, uh, that dynamic, I think, will start to flow through to major corporates. So major corporates have been less interested in doing that. And so corporations often will you know, uh, to meet an operational need, acquire a 50,000-foot building or acquire a 100,000-foot building. And, you know, if you're a, a Fortune 500 company and you've got a billion in cash and, and the corporate real estate team and the operations team says, for all kinds of good reasons, we want to be in this place, in this space, and by the way, it's a $20 million building. Well, you know, if you've got a billion in cash in the bank, $20 million, if it's the right reason to do it, it's not a problem. Um, but at some point, as you grow, you now have hundreds of millions or sometimes, you know, uh, billions of dollars of, of real property on your balance sheet. And that starts to become something that we're seeing CFOs and treasurers be more focused on. And it's that, it's that they're being influenced, I think, also by what the private equity firms are doing, which is they just 
go right to getting rid of the real estate, leasing it. So I think that's some of what's starting to change. Yeah, we're taking a definite different view of what we own and lease. You know, traditionally we would just buy road if it was a manufacturing purpose, we wanted to own it. That was indefinite. And because of the factors you're talking about, uh, we're taking a harder look at that and saying, well, you know, it's really tabletop assembly kind of manufacturing. It's not heavy infrastructure. There's not a lot of cranes, pits, those types of things. Basically shows up like a distribution space anyway. And let's unlock invested capital that we would have put into that project and you know, be able to do two, two or three other projects, expansion projects in our pipeline mm -hmm. that are in our core business. And you know, I don't need to be in the real estate business. I'm in the water technology business. And the way to optimize that in a lot of those cases is with more leasing these days. Yeah, so underneath the, separate from the dynamics of corporates issuing lots of, lots of cheap debt that's gonna have to get refinanced and real estate investors doing the same thing, there's another pool of capital that's uh, oriented towards buying those kind of facilities, leasing them back. They're not landlords in any way, shape or form. They're really just passive, about as passive, they try to be as passive as they can be uh, investors, which really aligns with that same operational need. So we characterize that as, as owning with other people's money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for corporates, you know, one of the objections we've often heard in, in manufacturing and critical assets is that we're afraid to give up control. And that's because the perception is we're going to have a landlord. And the reality is that you can find passive investors who will, will do exactly that. So it can be a win-win. Absolutely. The problem that I'm finding is that even when I want to buy, I can't find entitled land, right? I go out with a few projects where like, oh yeah, we want to do a buy in this market. Developer landlords have, you know, basically swallowed up the entitled lands and I'm very project time delivery motivated. I need to be in now and I don't have time to run through mm -hmm. traditional entitlement pro processes and, you know, be infective. And, there's yeah. no entitled lands, and I can't, I can't afford the time, so therefore I'm pushed into a lease mode sometimes as well. So what that's a great segue to the next question for you, Bill. So what kind of attributes are more, most important when Xylem is looking for new space? The scarcity of land, which you talked about already, you yep. know, how is that yep. affecting you? Um, it's, it's pushing us to more lease deals, and we're playing in those spec areas more than mm -hmm. we normally would, mm -hmm. right? Um, we want to be up and running uh, quicker, so uh, taking down some of those spec spaces and customizing uh, versus the timeline of a build-a-suit mm -hmm. is attractive in a number of those markets. I said from a site selection piece, it's really um, that distance to customer, how it impacts our network of distribution, um, uh, labor pool, mm -hmm. security, uh, and, you know, it's the old adage, right? It was like the, the price, quality, and time. Pick yeah. any two and I'll deliver it, right? I can't deliver all three. It's the same thing on the, you know, labor and cost and, uh, you know, safety, security, yeah. and comfort location. So when looking at, you know, let's say a few spec projects, how are you making a decision on which one to go with? Is it, you know, all financial driven? Is it, you know, landlord timing? Like, what's most important to you guys right now? So timing and cost are driving the front end mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And um, 
we're doing the projects because it enhances our service delivery and resilience profile. So the reason the project exists yeah. is probably on that side, but we're still back to cost and time. Mm -hmm. Matt, it looked like you had something you wanted no, to say. No, no, it was, it was something. It was the preceding question. I was going to oh, okay. say something. No worries. <laughs> Well, next question's for you. Yeah. Um, landlords are required to build faster with more amenities to attract clients. What is Prologis doing to ensure that you're being flexible for your tenants? What advice can you give occupiers on what to expect, especially with material lead times? Yeah, so um, new construction, we are, um, we are building functional buildings. Um, we look at... Uh, uh, Loading ratios, trailer parking is big, uh, clear height. We're not really, depending on what market you're in, you want to be 36 clear now, we're even going up to 40 clear. Um, power um, and, and ample parking. Um, I think we'll get into it later, but ESG initiatives, um, sustainability, uh, we're looking at solar, we're looking at EV infrastructure, smart, smart building technology in, in, in our buildings. Um, from a second-gen standpoint, it's a little different than office. Industrial is, is pretty down the fairway, nothing fancy, although we do have some customers that have some pretty slick build-outs. Um, but you've got to try to uh, attract and retain tenants or uh, uh, employees. Um, so for our second-gen spaces, like when we get a space back, and, and in my role, I kind of quarterback the construction process and, the, and, the, and, the, and what we call a make-ready process, which is, you know, in all of our spaces, we're doing uh, paint and carpet in the office, LED lighting on motion sensors, new ceiling tiles, bathrooms, LVT flooring, uh, touchless fixtures in the warehouse. It's LEDs. It's HVAC uh, 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 Docs, good working order. That's how we try to turn our spaces over. There's no true like amenitizing space, you know, that you might see in an office. But um, you know, that's kind of what we do. And then from a material uh, 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 lead time standpoint, I mean, there's still significant lead times, especially with power switch gears, panels, um, 40, 50 weeks to get a to get a switch gear in a new space. Um, it's it's an issue, um, but it's been going on now for what 25, 30 months. So mm -hmm. most everybody kind of gets it, and we're just trying to be upfront, honest, uh, transparent with with customers, prospects alike. So. So, given those lead times, what would you say is some advice you'd give some occupiers when signing a new lease or looking for new space? Um, if you sign a new a new lease, well. Second gen space, you're probably fine because you're, it's already built out. If you need some specialized, um, some specialized uh, HVAC for for product cooling in your warehouse, something like that, um, get out in front of, get get to us early. You know, yeah. talk, start talking about uh, you find a vacant space or you're going to renew and you're taking in a new product and you need something like that, then call us early and, and let's start talking to try to get. Let's get a lease done, and and we'll, um, you know, we'll put in the orders. The other thing is what we try to do because of our because of our size and scale, we try to, as best we can, kind of stockpile mm -hmm. uh, dock equipment, levelers, HVAC equipment, whatever whatever it is, um, and just kind of warehouse it so we have it on hand 
sometimes if we have a vacant building, we'll take it off that building and, and put it on, you know, switch. Mm -hmm. So we just did that with a, a panel on a, a spec building that we built uh, in Aurora. So um, we try to make it work. Yeah, no, I have a lot of clients that have been waiting weeks, months for switch gears, and it's it's painful, and those costs associated with it as well can be very surprising. So, yeah, we're seeing globally, we're seeing a lot of landlords being much more willing to participate in the ESG initiatives, uh, being able to fund solar panels, uh, working with us on our the labor attraction, <laughs> providing uh, you know neighborhood bus services to bring workers from the outskirts into our facility or from the city out to the outskirts for our facilities, uh, providing amenities like canteens where that are shared between a couple of companies. So employees, you know, they walk across the street, but they get a better quality and a larger selection than we might have normally provided in the past. So uh, there is a little a bit of that attraction retention element going on in the industrial space globally. Um, so Matt, though, how are you guys mitigating risks with overbuilding? Like, you know, how is Prologist dealing with that to make sure you know you're working with your clients? We're not overbuilt. We're not building <laughs> anything. <laughs> um, no. Um, so we have a uh, well. Construction financing has been, I think, fair to say, it's been difficult. Um, I think SVB probably made things worse. Um, the um, you know, we have, a, we have a big focus on built-to-suits. We have a land bank. We have about six sites where we can build in Chicago um, about 5 million feet. We're not doing any spec. Um, the last four build-to-suits Prologist has done in Chicago have all been existing customers that we're looking to expand with us. So we're mining our portfolio, looking for customers that like to expand, that would like to expand and try to monetize that land. Um, but yeah, I mean, like like a lot of other groups, not everybody, but but it was a lot of uh, pencils down. Um, I'd say third third quarter or so uh, last year with respect to spec. Um, I don't see. I mean, in Chicago, well, nationally we we see um, Phoenix, Dallas, um, Austin as three markets where there, there's some overbuilding. Um, but other than that, um, it, the, the fundamentals are pretty good. Um, in Chicago, there's, there's an area that I actually cover in Fox Valley, uh, Batavia, uh, St. Charles, and Geneva, where there's like 2 million feet of spec going up, um, which is, you know, it's just a little pocket. It's not all that concerning. We have, we inherited a, a spec development from Duke when we bought Duke. It's 275,000 feet. That's something that once we... It'll be, it'll be ready this summer. That's something we'll look to, to lease up and probably sell. It's not a strategic market for us. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we're, we're, it's going to be, it's hard for us to overbuild uh, when we're not building anything on spec, so. No, good point. Um, so I know we've mentioned it a few times. So ESG, so it's top of mind. Um, landlords and service providers as well as occupiers for all of you guys. Um, so how are these new requirements affecting your companies? How are occupier requests impacting delivery of industrial space? Loaded question. Who wants to go first? I'll run with it. <laughs> um, so ESG is top of mind at our company um, from... For those of the, maybe people who don't know what ESG is, maybe give a... Energy and sustainability, renewable energy, um, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just, just in case. That was the toughest question yet. Um, 
So C-suite, from the C-suite down to the, the local operations guys like me. Um, big focus on it. We have teams, uh, energy and sustainability teams that are, that are focused on um, creating solutions um, to have a positive impact on the environment. Um, solar, we're, we're doing all, all new construction. We're having like a, 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 a beefing up kind of the, the, the infrastructure and the roof to be able to support solar panels. Um, um, what's the other thing here? Uh, we're doing, oh, power to be, to be kind of um, energy ready. We're, mm -hmm. we're uh, more power delivered to the building. Um, we're allocating 50% of parking to uh, EV, EV parking at all of our, any new construction going up, you know, continuing to build out that, that EV infrastructure for, for, for uh, EV trucks. Um, and we have, Prologis has a, an LED lighting program as well. Um, so it's a big, it's a big, you know, initiative. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's top of mind for us, both in our business side and obviously operationally. Um, you know, we have the, you, they're pretty aspirational goals, but they're, uh, you know, uh, uh, GHG, uh, you know, sustainable, 100% uh, uh, reuse of water in our process water. So we're taking absolutely everything that we use in our manufacturing and recycling it ourselves on plants, bringing it back, capturing water off the roofs. Um, uh, you know, looking for zero waste of landfill kind of goals, uh, buying our power, you know, we're paying extra for power from sustainable sources. So mm -hmm. where we have choice, we're buying from, uh, you know, uh, nuclear or water, uh, you know, dam generation kind of power plants or uh, secondary sources, solar panels, same, same kind of elements. Um, and then just thinking sustainably, you know, in everything we're doing from packaging to our own product design and what the electrical draws are, et cetera. So uh, it's really changed the whole, the whole landscape as far as um, how much attention it's getting and how, uh, how real the measurement and the results need to be, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the topic has been around for a decade or more. But the reality of producing results versus having some catchphrases and some programs that happen here or here uh, is, you know, much more systemic, much more defined, much more measurable, and uh, good for us all, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, do you come across environmental sustainability in your world, or? No, it just it's another line item <laughs> in the capital budget. So. Yeah. <laughs> It is driving, on the corporate side, it's in driving investor behavior, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a large portion of some of these investment-grade funds that are insistent on, you know, ESG compliance yeah. or looking for ESG leaders. And if you look at the stat, I don't have the stats handy, but if you look, you'll find that companies that have that ESG label and qualify for those investor pools are outperforming the market. Uh, you know, in comparison to folks that aren't paying attention to it. Yeah, great. So just a time check. We have about like 10 more minutes until we'll go to Q&A. But Ben, I have a few more questions for you. Okay. So how are occupiers and investors financing development of new industrial space? What are you seeing in the private equity investment world? 
Yeah, so in situations where you can, where you're not in the, in the conundrum that Bill's faced with where <laughs> the developers control everything and you're not in markets where Prologis, uh, who is very, very capable, disciplined, and, and very good at what they do, if they're not in those markets. We have industrial clients that are in smaller cities, smaller towns, and there are interesting opportunities for them. So an example would be a, uh, a paper product manufacturing client uh, uh, owns a plant. They were leasing a 300,000-foot warehouse adjacent to the plant from their 3PL provider. So it's one of these things that just sort of happened into the 3PL provider. So we'll not only manage the product that comes out of your warehouse and get it all repackaged and sent out, but we'll build the warehouse and we'll just give you a, 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 a price to do all that. They manage everything. And so the client sort of gets to this kind of total cost of occupancy as well, total, which is really total cost of production, had um, two other facilities about 25 miles away. And they were shipping goods to these different places, then bringing them back and moving stuff around. And they realized that they were spending a lot of money just on transport. Um, so they, they thought it was best to try and expand this particular warehouse. So add another 200,000 feet to the 300,000 feet. And their 3PL provider, which is a, a lot of the 3PL providers, um, are kind of small businesses themselves. And so they thought, well, you know, We'll see if we can go get capital to go fund this uh, expansion, and they really couldn't, or the, or it was going to result in a capital in a, in a rent that was not sustainable for the business. So we put together a three-party deal with the three PL, with our client, and we went to uh, went to auction and got a net lease fund to buy the building, the the, the warehouse from the three PL provider, at least it back to the to the tenant. And then also to fund the 200,000 foot expansion. So the 3PL provider looked at it like, this is good. We want to get out of being a landlord. We just want to be a 3PL provider. They also looked at it like, this is good. We get to, you know, monetize an investment we've had for 20 years. So we get to put a pretty good sized check in our pocket. Um, our, but it had to be done at a rental rate that was going to work for the client. So the, the parties had to all kind of agree, uh, not kind of, they had to agree. And, and then the uh, financing source was in that lease fund that believed in the business, and the, the business was uh, just one notch below investment grade, so pretty financeable. And um, so we were able to put that together. So they were able to, that result was um, three pre provider kept their client and got a big check. The, uh, our client, the, the uh, paper products manufacturer, got the expansion without using their own capital and had a rental rate that worked for the business, and they were able to consolidate and save money by having one, everything in one place instead of having three locations. So it's kind of an example of things we're seeing outside of core prologious markets <laughs> um, where you can get control of some of the factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So clients are now more than ever looking at total cost of ownership or asset performance for their portfolios. What advice, then can you give them and what data should they be taking into consideration as they evaluate new opportunities? Yeah, this goes back to something I think I've, you know, in the Cornet finance classes I've led, we've been advocating, which is, you know, you in corporate real estate, we really want to understand our costs and in the fullest sense. And the accounting systems kind of inhibit that. So way back in 93, I was part of a management consulting practice. We wrote the first ever 
article in the Harvard Business Review about uh, corporate real estate called Uncovering Your Hidden Occupancy Costs. And the idea is to holistically figure out what it's really costing you to be in the space. So from an accounting standpoint, if it's leased, it's going to be your rent, your OPEX, and depreciation of capital. And if you're owned, it's going to be the OPEX, property tax, depreciation of capital that's spent as well as for those who are really most financially savvy, they're also including an opportunity cost of capital for the capital that's sunk in the business, sunk into the property. And what that starts to do is to reveal what the real cost is. And, and for office occupiers, I know this is about industrial, but it, some of this stuff becomes really clear for office occupiers where we have, owned, or we have clients with owned campuses because of all the, the uh, alternative officing, return to work dynamics, you know, we're, we're using less of that space. And so when you take all those factors and look at it, then look at it in terms of the cost of the space that's actually being used, you see some interesting dynamics. So we did this analysis for uh, a financial services client. They have a half million square foot owned campus, nice campus. You know, from a corporate real estate standpoint, it hits all the efficiency metrics. 200 rentable square feet per seat. It's got the nice cafeteria. It has a nice feel to it. Um, so, you know, it, it works all day long in that perspective. When we looked at the costs, you know, the cost per, um, per square foot, just from a cash cost, was about 12 bucks a foot. We looked at it from a P&L basis, it was about adding a depreciation, it was about 28 bucks a foot, okay? We looked at it and we added in the opportunity cost of capital given, given their return expectations on their capital and the value of the asset, it's about 58 bucks a foot. So, and then when you think about the campus going forward really only being about 45% utilized, it becomes pretty clear that the cost per person who's there is really high, even though these aren't expensive looking buildings, they're, they're, it's officially laid out. So we're starting to see that kind of math play through and in corporate real estate, the more we can pull together that body of, of cost insight, that starts to become a call to action to do things differently. And so that's what we're starting to see. I would defer to, to, to Bill and others on how that plays through in, in manufacturing because it's less about cost per person and more about production of units and other how it fits into the supply chain. Yeah, I'd say the, the biggest thing I see that parallels that activity is uh, with a lot of legacy manufacturing that's grown up into being 10 building campuses and they're little parts and it's every decade it expands a little bit more and you know becomes this big albatross in the portfolio that it's just there and it's part of the production infrastructure but people don't look at that optimization right and we've had uh, several projects globally where uh, we've gone back to that campus and you know really dug into the cost of maintaining some of these 100 year old structures or you know, 60-year-old manufacturing buildings and the efficiency of being under one roof and those kind of things. We're taking 500,000 square feet spread over 10 buildings down to 280,000 square feet under one roof in a modern way and meeting all of our ESG energy efficiency goals, things like that. Unlocking invested capital that was sitting in land that because it's a 100-year-old thing now is, you know, was a better retail development or a residential development and, uh, you know, sort of repositioning and participating with the communities and optimizing the land use as well. So, uh, you know, that's the dynamic that's changing there. And it's very much driven on your message there of uh, looking at that 
blocked capital and the opportunity costs that you're foregoing. And we're, we're turning around, we say, yeah, we saved 10 million bucks and we're gonna turn that around into an expansion project in another market, you know, in the Philippines or whatever. And uh, where we're gonna, instead of, you know, the, the 10% kind of uh, kick on the lease deal, we're gonna be making 20 plus margin on our investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for this panel event, Bill, Ben, and Matt. Um, I guess now we'll open it up to Q&A. So I know there's going to be a microphone coming around. So um, just raise your hand if you have a question. Yeah. So uh, this question is uh, for the entire panel, just to get your perspective. And so, um, Bill, you mentioned a lot of things happening around the world that's causing a lot of uncertainty. You have inflation, the war in Ukraine, the supply chain, you had COVID in China, which was their number one concern. How is that impacting your decision-making process? And what are you telling your teams? Are you taking your foot off the accelerator and saying, hey, let's wait and see how this plays out in the current environment? Or what, I'd love to get your perspective. Yeah. Um there's certainly no foot off the accelerator from the standpoint of, you know, the growth piece. Um, what you're seeing is business cases that used to get evaluated strictly on NPV have a resiliency component to them where there's an assessment of what is the impact to this on our overall business continuity planning. I, I also, in this process, I inherited business continuity planning for our Organization, so every one of our facilities, uh, particularly manufacturing and distribution, have their own site level. What do we do if this becomes incapacitated? And then at the network level, we have plans that say these three plants globally can potentially back us up. They do similar products, they do similar manufacturing competencies, so they can move between the two. That's the biggest change. So that that's in the room, very much live front and center. Uh, on the risk evaluation and the approval stage of the business case. I think one thing we've seen is just, and it's not surprising, and maybe you all are seeing this too, is that there's been a uh, caution in decision-making, particularly with anything sort of large and substantive. And so certain businesses have a, have a growth trajectory where they need to go ahead and go past that, but others that are sort of growing or growing more slowly have been more cautious, and we're starting to see on the office side uh, some of that caution being sort of transitioned to a willingness to make decisions in, mm -hmm. in the absence of perfect knowledge. So we uh, earlier this year worked with a, a, uh, a large client in, in Atlanta who decided to reduce their office from 275,000 feet to 200 and to extend their <laughs> lease. We were able to... But they're willing to do it, and the CFO is willing to do it in the absence of perfect knowledge about how many people are really going to come back every day. And they knew it was less; they needed a whole lot less space than they had. And they were, there was a financial benefit doing what they did, and they wanted to stay where they were. So we're starting to see some CFOs, particularly, have that mindset. That it's you know we we're in 2020, 21. It's like. What's really going to happen, we don't know. 22, we start to realize, you know what, whether we use a carrot to set people to come back, a stick to threaten people, they don't come back. You know, there's only so many people who are going to be here every day. And as a matter of fact, this was kind of happening in 2019 anyway for a lot of individual contributors, professionals. So 
let's just let's just sort of accept reality. We have more than we need. Let's get to approximately you know what we think we need. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be perfect, um, and let's go forward and start to carve out costs where we can. I, I would say, like, a lot of my clients are very cautious when making decisions on whether it makes sense to renew or relocate. You know, we're looking at, you know, significant increases in rent. And, you know, maybe in their 28-foot clear building, but, you know, down the street there's 32. They could be more efficient, but there's a lot of risk and associated cost that comes with that. So just kind of, you know, balancing, you know, the pros and cons of making that big move. Um, with the potential risk, um, with, you know, lead times and things not getting delivered on time and increasing construction pricing. We're starting to see it level off. And, um, you know, there's definitely a more appetite as I think vacancy is starting to open up too. But um, just as a service provider, just making sure my clients are aware of all of the potential red flags and concerns when making those decisions. But it's definitely a cautious one. From an investment standpoint, um the messaging at Prologis is that we're, we're our liquidity is at an all-time high. Just we're, we're we're being patient. We're still looking at all deals. We're looking at buying. We're looking at looking at developing. But there are components that you know with with the high inflationary environment and and uh, interest rates rising to fight that. Cap rates are increasing. Um, it's tough to make sense out, out of deals. But we think that there's going to be some opportunities here um, on all fronts in the second in the second half of the year. And then from a customer standpoint, we're seeing it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, you've got some customers that are definitely slowing it down, analyzing. It's funny they'll they'll come in and and you'll agree to a, a letter of intent, and then it still has to go through a couple people for approvals, and that's taking longer and longer. The deals are getting more more heavily screwed heavily scrutinized um and then there are other customers that are you'll you'll see they're they're taking down space left and right yeah when um, rents are going up you know 20 percent year over year they're gonna be scrutinized (laughs) totally right exactly yeah any other questions yeah uh jake shoot with pepper construction project manager just had a quick question you guys mentioned uh security and i guess the safety of your spaces is there, and I would assume there is, but just kind of would think we'd all enjoy hearing about maybe are there different things that you're doing to your existing spaces to make them safer or to develop the environment around it to maybe help those areas? Because obviously you could go look for new safe spaces, but it also, you have responsibility to maybe help the areas you already own. So just yeah. uh, curious yeah, about that. Yeah, you spoke about crime rates. And- yeah, no, that's great. Uh, you know, existing locations, we're, uh, we're actively partnering with local community groups and participating in the dialogue about helping to fund neighborhood watch kind of activities and things like that. Uh, within the space, you know, we've uh, uh, put a renewed focus on our electronic security and phys- physical security elements um, and utilizing more uh, uh, mass notification and artificial intelligence monitoring of what happens, right? Like the, you know, the the tweet about the fire happens almost as fast as the fire alarm does, right? Or the the disturbance on the street. So um, we're we're trying to do more with the uh, artificial artificial intelligence and uh, mass notification to our workers of any kind of safety event that they might experience either within the surrounding area or on their way home. Uh, 
uh, elements such as that. New development. Um, I mean, it, we don't require anybody securitize their, you know, fence their truck court, um, anything like that. Security for individual units are on our customers to, to we don't want to be liable for, for that. Uh, we have insurance and everything, but um, uh, we have an urban last touch strategy where we're looking at buying in Chicago proper and building out our network there. Um, so those, those developments will be, you know, fenced, parking, multi-level parking, parking will be up top. Um, so that, that, that would hopefully prevent some, some of the issues. But most of our product is outside of the city and actually in, in fairly, you know, nice areas where, where crime is still relative, still low, so. Yeah. Um, not on the crime topic, but safety in general and in industrial buildings, um, you know, there's obviously pros and cons with dealing with big institutional owners or your, you know, typical mom and pop, but just I've had clients that have had issues with not having the sidewalk salted and, you know, employees slipping, you know, those are also things to be, con you know, thinking about. And then, you know, guardrails around the walls for, you know, machinery, equipment, and the columns can, you know, there's risks with that too. So employee training and, you know, any other safety protocols you can, you know, put into the building as well. Any other questions? Two good questions. All right, well, thank you guys so much. Um, it was a great event. Thank you for having us. Thank you.